I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k flats. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. It's Lars Larson. Thanks for listening to my podcast and for listening to The Lars Larson Show. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit iraadvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's iraadvantage.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and Happy New Year and welcome to the very first show for the Pacific Northwest on the Radio Northwest Network for 2023. Glad you could join me today. And if you want to join me on the phone, that's easy enough to do. We try to make this a better dialogue than a monologue every day of the week at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and I'll tell you about our Twitter poll in just a moment. But first, welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. I want to talk about some of the crazy new laws that are going into effect this year in Oregon, in Washington, and in Idaho. And of course, a lot of the worst policies are not being put in place by laws. They're being put in place by policies, like a carbon policy that is set to increase the cost of fuel in the Evergreen State, in Washington State, by about 46 cents a gallon. My mother-in-law asked me about that the other night, and she said, does that go into effect on January 1st? I said, well, because it's a carbon tax of sorts, it doesn't snap into effect all at once, but that's some of the bad stuff, that many of the worst decisions are being made for citizens by people you've never heard of, people not elected to any public office, people, in other words, who aren't accountable to you, but they're being pushed by the likes of, say, Jay Inslee. But welcome to the program. Glad to have you on board. I will tell you that tomorrow, one of the worst laws in the Pacific Northwest, the result of ballot measure 114. Yes, we're still hanging fire on that. And a judge in Harney County tomorrow is set to decide whether or not parts of measure 114 will go into effect in part or in whole. That is up to a judge in Harney County. And the state of Oregon, which has already tried to fight against 
the efforts against Measure 114. Double negative. But what they're saying is the minute this thing was passed by voters, by a very, very squeaky, bare majority of 27,000 votes out of millions of votes cast, there were a number of lawsuits that were filed, and rightly so, because Measure 114 is clearly unconstitutional. And thank goodness there is a judge in Harney County on the east side of the state of Oregon, and not one of the most conservative judges, as the way I understand the judge's reputation. But he decided this is clearly unconstitutional, not under the Second Amendment, that's the federal constitution, but under Article 1, Section 27 of the state constitution, which, as much as I love the Second Amendment, I think the state version of it in the state of Oregon and in the state of Washington is framed so much better. It is so much clearer that the people shall have the right to possess and bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. If only the founders had written the Second Amendment that way, we would have avoided all those arguments over the years about militia and commas and things like that. But tomorrow, that judge in Harney County on the 3rd of January is set to decide whether or not any part of Measure 114 goes into effect. And the worst part of that is that that leaves literally tens of thousands of citizens who've attempted to buy firearms over the last two months or so, leaves them hanging in limbo. Nobody knows what is going to happen, whether or not that measure is going to be decided to be totally unconstitutional under the state constitution. And at that point, you're going to see a fight. You'll watch the state of Oregon and the folks who are in charge of the state of Oregon right now. It's brand new governor coming into office very soon to replace. Thank God she's going Kate Brown. But Tina Kotek, if anything, will be worse. They hate guns. They hate the idea that citizens are actually able to be armed. So they will be fighting this thing, and I predict it'll go from state court to federal court to appeals courts and probably all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And if that's the result, fine. Then finally we get a decision about whether or not the people of a state can put it in the Constitution that the people have a right to bear arms. But there are other crazy laws out there as well, and I want to talk about them. But first, you're invited to join the conversation on this Monday, the 2nd of January. Glad to have you with me. 866-HEY-LARS is the number. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. And naysayers, as always, is now the 26th year of naysayers go to the head of the line. And I'm glad to invite you to the program. If you disagree with my point of view, then muster up some courage and dial the number and tell me where and why I'm wrong. Be sure to bring a few facts, a little bit of logic, and a willingness to answer a couple of questions with you. Our Twitter poll today, and this goes to the federal level, do you think a Republican-controlled House of Representatives, no, I'm not talking about Olympian, I'm not talking about Salem, I'm talking about Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Do you think that a Republican-controlled House will make 2023 better than 2022? It at least raises the prospect that perhaps some members of the Biden administration, like Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas, and perhaps even the big guy himself, may face some impeachment efforts. If they do, they richly deserve it. But do you think a Republican-controlled House will make 2023 better than 2022? 
I would say it has to be a little bit better. Probably won't be a whole lot better based at least on how the Republicans are fumbling this ball at this point. But I'd have to say, yes, it will. You can answer today's Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Always brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now about the new laws, let me just go over a few of them very quickly. Senate Bill 1513 in Oregon prohibits an employer from taking adverse actions against workers employed in certain manufacturing establishments who refuse to work an overtime shift unless the employer provides the employee with at least five days advance notice of the overtime, including the date and time of the shift. Now, I would imagine that a lot of you work in circumstances where they don't know they need you to work an overtime shift until the last minute. So what happens? You punish the employer for going to his workers and say, would you like to earn some overtime today? Many employees are happy to do that. In this case, five days advance notice that you need somebody to work some overtime. How often does that happen? Then you've got House Bill 4031. Now, get this. This has to do with the Department of Education. They want to push the idea that there should be a diversity of employees. By that, they mean skin color. They mean sexual preference. They mean, in probably most cases, transgender as well, that matches the percentage among the students, not in the community, but among the students. And that's crazy as well. In Idaho, some good news. Uh, tax rates are going to go down. So that means workers should have more money to spend. That's not happening in Oregon or Washington. No, in Oregon or Washington, the taxes are going up. And in Washington state, companies that employ 15 or more must include a salary range in all their job postings. I don't think this is going to do anybody any good. And starting yesterday, Washington's new minimum wage goes to fifteen seventy-four an hour. Now, I know that if some of you will celebrate that news, you'll say, gee, I'm going to make more money. That's assuming that your boss with those additional costs is going to be able to afford the extra cost, or will you simply say a higher hourly rate, but not as many hours, because that is likely to be the result for many, many people. In any case, glad to be with you on a Monday. Always glad to take your calls in the new year of 2023. Coming up in a moment on the Northwest Nonsense, where's crime going to go in 2023? The current indications, the writing is on the wall, and it ain't good right now. Welcome to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of nonsense. Right, you're bloody well right. You know he got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead, fish wrapper, or mainstream media bias. Well, Happy New Year on this second day of January, and I think we all hope for less violent crime in 2023. Unfortunately, the facts on the table right now don't seem really likely to produce that result this year, sad to say. After all, have you seen the signals our system of law enforcement, if you can still call it that, have been sending to the criminal class? Voters returned a mostly Democrat legislature to both Salem and Olympia. They're not likely to make the changes necessary to slow down the violence. Like, for example, letting the police actually chase criminals as they have largely prohibited them from doing in Washington state. Like pressuring DAs, Mike Schmidt of Multnomah County comes to mind, to actually prosecute criminals, not decline to prosecute, as Schmidt show has done with literally hundreds and hundreds of criminals. 
Portlandia Mayor Ted Wheeler managed to create the storm conditions that let murder hit a new record high back in 2021. And another record was set at the end of last year, 2022, that actually topped 2021. I don't expect a come-to-Jesus moment for feckless Ted, just more excuses, whining, and hand-wringing. That's been his M.O. most of the last couple of years. Lame Duck Governor Kate Brown really takes the cake, though. While her immediate predecessors, Governors Kitzhaber and Kulangoski, together only offered 60 commutations and a couple of dozen pardons during 16 years in office. Crime-friendly Kate, in just seven years, has managed more than 46,000 commutations and pardons. And no, I didn't slip a digit or say something I didn't mean to say. 46,000-plus pardons and commutations compared to less than 100 from the se- of the same from two Democrats who served as governor for the better part of two decades. Our friends at Oregon Catalyst point out in Hillsboro, prisoners were allowed to do outdoor work on a work crew in a five-acre area, unsupervised for many hours. One prisoner simply walked away. He then savagely beat two women and took off with their car. The two women were hospitalized. They were Japanese tourists. It created an international incident and embarrassment for the state and the Pacific Northwest. Both the state corrections and forestry departments have refused to release basic details of what happened in that escape and then the later crimes. They recently paid five million taxpayer dollars to compensate the victims of those crimes. I'm not arguing that the victims shouldn't have been compensated, but if you had five million dollars damage done by a program that allowed criminals to walk around without supervision, somebody needs to provide the public with an explanation. And as a final message over this past New Year's weekend, one of Portland's thousands of drug-addicted homeless living on the streets pushed a little three-year-old girl onto the Max Light Rail tracks. Now, I know you're hearing the mainstream media call it alleged, but she did it in front of eyewitnesses, and she did it on video. And based on the video and the eyewitness statements, she pushed this little girl with no provocation whatsoever. Thankfully, the little girl, three years old, was not seriously injured. The drug-addicted homeless woman, Brianna Workman, we find, has several felony convictions. And just last June, she was arrested for slashing a man with a knife after he invited her to share breakfast. But only now is she being held in custody. If you were a criminal, what is the take-home message you get out of just those few facts? And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. The way has been paved by trademark paving. Just pave it. Serving Southwest Washington. Well, today's Daily Grill goes to all the decision makers who've been getting rid of traditional ways of making electricity and replacing them with things that don't truly replace them. Major rate hikes are coming this year for customers of Pacific Power and PGE. Rate hikes of almost 15%. And why did the Public Utility Commission approve those budget-busting increases? Quote, Higher power costs for the utilities, and in the case of Pacific Power, costs to lower wildfire risks in the future. In seeking the increase, Pacific Power cited significant increases to its estimated cost to produce power and purchase power, as well as global supply chain problems. 
Governments in the Pacific Northwest, as I've been telling you for literally years, have forced utilities to shut down relatively inexpensive coal-fired electric plants and build wind and solar as replacements at a much higher price. Wind and solar are less reliable because, as you might know, the sun don't shine all the time and the wind only blows about one-third of every day. And that's where your power is coming from, and that's why your power bill is going up. Today's best email, but you can always send more to talk at LarisLarson.com. Brought to you by the MEI Group, one of the largest heavy civil construction companies in the Northwest. Currently hiring and paying top dollar for project managers, engineers, and estimators. The MEI Group.com. Robert Horton writes in, Lars, my brother has been in inpatient treatment for drug addiction for three years now. I know yesterday you were talking about it, and it was mentioned that the people used to basically put their mortgages on the line to get the treatment. Well, my brother just says he's homeless, and every single penny being paid to the hospitals and treatment is being paid by the state. He's been in the hospital 15 times for up to a week in the last three years, and he constantly relapses. How much money he's used that the people have paid in taxes has to be astronomical. While he's gone through all of this psychosis and mental illness from all the drugs, he then decided he should be a woman. The last year, the state is now paying for all of his drugs and medical treatment to transition. He lives in a house for free and has the whole time when he is in outpatient care. It's insane that all this money goes to somebody who does all of this on purpose because he found a loophole to live off tax money from the public. He says he's retired now at age 30 because he found a loophole in life. Signed, Robert. Robert, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Send those emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And let's start the new year with Stefan in Bend, listening on the Radio Northwest Network and KBND. Hey, Stefan, what's on your mind today? Hey, Lars. Uh, long-time listener. Um, I'm a Thank you. Uh, carrier. Um, you know, I've, I've purchased firearms plenty of times. And used to be you'd go to the front of the line if you had one of those. But, you know, recently uh, you don't anymore. There's kind of a... You know, they just kind of put everybody in the, into a queue. Anyway, yep. on the 12th, I decided to buy a little Target uh, 22 pistol and went into the queue. And I was like, okay, I'll check and check. It was over at Bymark. So I decided to call the OSP 503 number yesterday after waiting a few weeks. And I talked to a guy there, and he said, you know, if you go back in there to the store, if you go into the store, I mean, and you just have them phone it in, then it'll go right through. And I'm like, oh, well, shoot. That doesn't seem right. That, that seems crazy. All right, I'm right outside the store. I went into the store. I got the manager and a buddy of mine that works there, and he asked his manager permission to run uh, a phone it in after I've already been in the queue already, which kind of creates a paperwork nightmare for them. Right. We called in. We were one in line. All of a sudden, they answered. The person on that phone had answered that time. She didn't know, so she put him on hold, and then all of a sudden came back on and said, all right, yeah, we're going to go ahead and do it. I ended up walking out of the store with my pistol. I was like, wow, I wonder how many other people would like to walk out of the store with their pistol and been waiting, you know, 77 days for this check. You know, I had to pay another $10, so 20 in total. But, you know, I was like, all right, I'll try it and see if it works. So I just stood there. I had nothing else better to do uh, but wait. And I was like, all right, let's see if this works. Sure enough, it and went Stephen, through. And, Stefan, all of that works. The only problem is there's a limit on how many phone-ins that each store can do. There's a limit on how many phone-ins the OSP can do. But very good point. Thanks for the call. It's the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on the first uh, show day for the Pacific Northwest, for the Radio Northwest Network. Glad to be with you on January 2, and glad to welcome back my long friend, longtime friend, Josh Marquis, the former DA of Clatsop County, 
because I need to have a legal expert tell us what it means when the Oregon State Supreme Court decides to strike down literally hundreds of felony convictions for criminals. Josh, welcome back. And can you make this simple for my audience? Sure. And let's let's be real. We're not talking about hundreds of cases. We're talking about thousands. Essentially, um, for the last 85 years in Oregon, based on an uh, overwhelming vote of the people back in 1934, um, a person could be found guilty of any crime except murder by a, by a verdict of 10 or more. So 10 to 2, 11 to 1, or unanimous. That actually went up before the United States Supreme Court in 1972, in a case called Apodaca versus Oregon, U.S. Supreme Court said, mind you, this is the Supreme Court that adopted, nominated mostly by Democrats back in the 60s. They said, no problem. Um, and now, uh, because of both local decisions here in Oregon and a federal decision uh, with very little notice, um, any uh, person who was convicted on less than 12 will have their conviction wiped out of existence. Um, just to give you an idea of how many cases these are, um, I've been a lawyer for 42 years, and I've tried a lot of cases, probably over 250 to 300 jury trials. The vast majority of the ones that go to trial are more serious cases, like rape and robbery and sex abuse. Uh, I would estimate that 90 to 95 percent of those cases were non-unanimous. And the reason why is it's very simple. And it doesn't, it's not a big technical legal thing. When you tell people in a, in a, a dynamic environment that, look, you've got to make this decision. But once you reach 10, that's enough. You don't need to deliberate any further. That's right. been the law for 85 years. So that's why you have so many non-unanimous verdicts. It, the, the other side claims that this is all part of racism and some evil plan by the Ku Klux Klan. What's interesting, if that were true, then we would expect presumably to have a lot more, say, black people convicted in Oregon than are convicted in other states, or just more convictions generally. Guess what? Oregon doesn't have a, a greater conviction rate for black people. Um, we don't have a greater conviction rate. What we are going to have is an absolute catastrophe because the vast majority of these cases will not be retried. They can't be retried. The victims are going to be dead. The witnesses will be dead. The prosecutors will be dead. And, and, and it won't just be a question of these people not getting another shot at, uh, at being convicted, not that anybody would line up for that. It's that, according to the law, if you're not convicted, it never happened. So the media will be unable to report on the fact that look, let's take the, the you know the the jogger the the the, the man jogger who was rapist. released. I'm trying to remember Gilmore. Name. Gilmore. Gilmore. Any of yep. those convictions that resulted from a non-unanimous jury, and I didn't handle those cases. I don't know how many they were. They'll be wiped out. And, and, and the media will no longer be able to refer to him as the jogger. And if he wants to get a job, oh, I don't know, you know, in daycare or maybe uh, handing out towels at a women's gym, not a problem. Because it'll be wiped out. And as you pointed out, 
I was referring to the 300 who are sitting behind bars right now, but you're right. saying there are thousands of cases that this will affect, and sure. these people will have their records, at least for the crimes they were found guilty of by a jury, wiped out. And if anybody, and here's where we get into the lying part of it, Josh, because <laughs> you've pointed out to me, 20 years ago, a guy gets convicted. He goes to a lawyer and says, hey, there's this non-unanimous verdict uh, thing. Can, can I benefit from that? And the lawyer says, well, I can't tell you how to testify. That would be unethical, you know, uh, even though it's a defense attorney. So the ethics of defense attorneys, I think, leave a lot to be desired. But if you were to tell the judge, if it is your recollection that it was a non-unanimous verdict, there's nothing to contradict you. There's no record of non-unanimous verdicts in almost all cases. So if you say it happened that way, and the DA who's handling the case today, who's almost certainly not the DA who handled it 20 years ago, he has no way to prove that it wasn't a, a non-unanimous verdict, you're out, right? You bring up a very, very, a very good point, which is that um, although there's a lot of data accumulated, and, and I've spent m most of my adult life filling out these forms, checking them, et cetera, et cetera, there is no place on any of these forms where it says, um, was this uh, verdict unanimous? And because of the way our system works, unless the prosecutor, and you pointed out, who won't be the same person, probably won't have, have even been a lawyer at the time the case was tried, unless the prosecutor, when confronted with this, claimed that, oh, yeah, I seem to remember. And in fairness to the defense attorney, they're not going to have any specific memory. They're going to turn to their client, who was the person there, and say, well, what do you remember? And you can, you can imagine in that conversation, oh, you know, I think I remember now. I think there was some one guy came up and said, oh, I didn't want to see you convicted. Um, and that's all it'll take, because, again, the burden will be on the state if the state can't affirmatively prove that it was a unanimous jury. And by the way, they've slipped in something that, of course, is not in the dead fish wrap. Now, if if, in fact, for fairness, all verdicts should be unanimous, that's sort of the theme here, then presumably it should work the other way around, right? So if a, right. if a verdict is 10 to, no, no, no. They 10 make 2 sure. for acquittal or, is what you're saying. If, if yeah, the jury says can. 10 to 2 for acquittal, except they, they decided to make two standards, one for conviction and a, a different standard for acquittal, right? Exactly. So in other words, the whole system is now biased more in favor of the criminals and against, against the interests of public safety. Well, and, and at, a, at such a level that over the last 30 years, it wasn't so much prosecutors like me that were winning at the ballot box or at the, at, at, in, in the courtroom. I, I have more confidence in jurors. They usually can see through, uh, you know, a, a, a Blarney story, whether it's one given by a cops or one that's given by the defendants. The, the problem is going to be that essentially there's going to be no record. There's going to be no basis. We're, we're basically redefining the truth. You know, life doesn't mean life. Guilty doesn't mean guilty. Uh, man doesn't it, mean woman. Really <laughs> woman doesn't mean man. <laughs> if you call somebody a woman, it doesn't necessarily have to be a woman, right? Uh, yeah, that too. <laughs> At least according to one Supreme Court justice. So could the legislature fix this if they chose to or if it chose to? If the legislature chose to, theoretically, they, they, they could, although with a Kate Brown sealed and approved Supreme Court, which she made sure of 
two days before leaving office she had. I think that's unlikely. Unfortunately, the, the long, hard road is to once again get uh, voters to, to, with the help of, of constitutional lawyers, to draft another part of the Oregon Constitution to make it really, really, really clear what we mean to do. Um, that's how most of these things have happened, not because, you know, evil prosecutors and, or, or bad judges did it. It's because voters in Oregon have been fought, fed up time and time again. That's, that's how the entire, um, uh, the entire voter plan came into effect in the first place. In- Absolutely right. That's Josh Marquis, the former DA of Clatsop County. It's January 2. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Coming up, a Seattle church appeals for help against a horde of homeless, and I'll get to your calls, too. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on this new year, 2023. It's a Monday, and I'm glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. In a moment, I want to tell you about a couple of stories. One's out of Seattle, a church that is appealing for rescue from the hordes of homeless that are starting to surround the church. And they're saying, you got to help us out. And then I want to tell you about something really dumb that Tacoma has decided to do as part of what is called its Vision Zero effort. Portland's been doing the same kind of thing. It doesn't work. It doesn't save lives. Lives. It looks good is is ba- basically the bottom line on that. But welcome back to the program. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS on the Radio Northwest Network. Our Twitter poll today, do you think a Republican-controlled House of Representatives on Capitol Hill will make 2023 better than 22? You can vote on that at Lars Larson Show uh, at, uh, on Twitter or on our website at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Let me start with Merlin. Hey, Merlin, thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Well, Lars, I mean, first of all, 114. I really don't think that thing passed. I think they prodded it through. Pretty easy to do when the rural counties have a lot less population than the metro counties. And, you know, if you, if like Multnomah County, a million votes, pretty easy to throw 6 or 8% in there, where Sherman County has 2,000 votes. You know, pretty hard to do that there, right? And so pretty much in this state, anything that's east of the Sandy River, south of the Enchanted Forest, that entire area is not down with what these people are polling in the metro and so, I mean, it's, it's kind of a problem on the street, by Lars, and, and so I don't think 114 passed to begin with. And your last guest that was talking about the, uh, the convictions nice and overturning those, what, what happens if, if someone's lawyer said, you know, if they get 10 to 2, then you're going to be convicted, and the person based his decision on accepting the plea bargain on what his lawyer told him, the 10 to 2, when, wouldn't that qualify mm-hmm. also to have, mm-hmm. it, have it overturned? Well, no, I, I, I couldn't... I could see somebody trying that argument saying the only reason I pleaded guilty was because I realized that I could be convicted by 10 uh, instead of convicted by 12. You could make the argument. I don't see that there's enough of a connection there. But back to 114, I think the whole vote by mail system is fraudulent. It is wide open to fraud. You saw in other states that began to dramatically increase the number of vote by mail ballots or absentee ballots uh, that, that there was fraud that went on where the states violated their own rules. The problem is, hold on, hold on, Merlin. The problem is you've got to be able to prove it. And the prop, and, and, and there comes the, the difficulty. How do you prove? Well, because the numbers never lie, Lars. I mean, it, basically, in this state, 73% of everybody, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, 73% of the people in this state 
are not, they think that, they, that an individual has the right to bear arms, right? 73%. So that number alone tells Where us that there's no that way number? with the. Where did you get that? I got number? it from an ABC, ABC poll from ABC. Okay. I got it right here. Do you want me to quote it for you? I can. The, the problem is, Merlin, Merlin, if every single conservative in the state had voted no on Measure 114, it would have failed. But every single conservative did not. The turnout was around, I think it was around 60 percent, which means 40 percent of the people, both Democrats and Republicans, failed to cast a ballot at all. So when you say, well, all these people, I I don't disagree with you. It it stunned me because the when you look at an even better number than public opinion polls, do you know that uh, one half of all the households in the state of Oregon, I'd suspect the same is true of the state of Washington, have a gun-owning person in the household, or more than one. So you have half the households uh, in which people own guns. So they clearly believe in owning guns because it's a choice to own a gun or not. Here's the other thing, Lars, real quick, because I know, I know you're running out of time, is this. Right, with the crime rates going sky high, every you, you talk about it daily, every other newscast talks about these crime rates going sky high. Do you think anyone in the Northwest here is not a bit concerned? And, and would they vote to give up their right to protect themselves going forward? I wouldn't think so, but the problem is, as I pointed out, an awful lot of people did not vote. Now, do I think there was cheating? Sure. I think that vote by mail is rife with cheating. And in fact, when there was a presidential commission on voting and they looked at vote by mail, Jimmy Carter, who's not exactly a conservative, the former president, Jimmy Carter from Plains, Georgia, said the greatest opportunities for fraud come in vote by mail. And I believe we're seeing that proved out right now. Merlin, thanks for the call. Hey, I do want to mention one thing. On New Year's Eve, a friend of mine passed away. His name is Dory Monson. Uh, Dory is a talk show host or was a talk show host in Seattle. He passed away unexpectedly on New Year's Eve. He was only 61 years of age. And uh, I have talked to Dory more times than I can count over the years. Uh, I talked to him back when they gave him a hard time because he gave Jay Inslee a hard time about allowing birth certificates and uh, DMV certificates where you could change your gender despite the fact that you're male, you could become female, etc. He made fun of that. He got all kinds of grief as a result of it. He stuck to his guns. He was a great man, a great family as well, and we will miss him sorely. Now, let me mention two things. Number one, the Greek Orthodox Church of Assumption which is on Seattle's Capitol Hill. Yeah, Capitol Hill, uh, where the chop zone was. Capitol Hill, they say that they're having a tough time even getting their congregation to come to church because of a growing homeless encampment, and they have called for the city to try to rescue them. So far, not much of anything coming from City Hall. And in Tacoma, they've decided to reduce speeds in residential areas to 20 miles an hour. And they say it's part of Vision Zero to uh, reduce the number of traffic fatalities and serious injuries. I got news for Tacoma. 70% of the injuries and deaths happen on arterial streets. So reducing the speed limit in residential neighborhoods, it makes it look like you're doing something meaningful. It doesn't actually change the situation much at all. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network and the Lars Larson Show on Monday, January 2. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? 
The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Happy New Year and happy Monday from the Lars Larson Show. Welcome to the Radio Northwest Network, providing honestly provocative talk for the states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Glad to be with you on this 2nd of January and always glad to take your calls. You can weigh in on the show in a number of ways. You can email talk at LarsLarson.com. You can dial me up at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers always go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You, uh, you can vote in our Twitter poll. Do you think a Republican-controlled House of Representatives on Capitol Hill will make 23 better than 2022? I'd have to say yes, but not by much. Uh, one of the jobs of people who work in the news media, and I've worked in the news media now for 48 years, um, one of the jobs of people in the press uh, as they used to call it, uh, now media, uh, is to keep an eye on the doings of government. And the problem is an awful lot of the press has become kind of lapdogs. They get press releases, they report what the governments tell them to report, and a lot of them should be a lot more skeptical than they really are. So it's really nice to see somebody like Kerry Martell, who decided as the publisher and editor of the Yamhill Advocate, in one community to say, I'm going to keep an eye on what's going on in my community, and I'm going to find a proof for the stories, uh, except that he ended up facing the possibility of, the, of arrest, the possibility of prosecution, simply because he dogged a story uh, to the point where he got an audio recording of somebody who, uh, who told him exactly what he thought was going on. And that was that uh, a coalition of people uh, inside of uh, Yamhill County uh, we're, we're running things, and the coalition was the Democrats. Kerry, welcome to the program. You very nearly went to jail, didn't you? Yes, I did. Thank you uh, for having me on the show, Lars. But, yes, that, that's accurate. Um, they, uh, they came into my uh, gym that I own there in Newburgh, uh, in addition to the newspaper. And uh, they, uh, Elise Holloman is the city councilor for Newburgh, who I had recorded at a public meeting. She made uh, some confessions, which I published, and then she uh, demanded that I basically be cited for having broken some sort of illegal electronic surveillance law. And uh, she kind of left out some facts, I think, about it being a public meeting. She tried to claim it was over with, which I don't really think it was. Um, and they tried to arrest me for it. I mean, the bottom line, Carrie, and I've had to deal with that law, too, is that in public meetings, you're allowed to record what people say. You can video record it. You can audio record it. If you were to make a secret recording, you, even on the phone in Oregon, one-party consent applies. So if one person on a phone call knows it's being recorded, it doesn't matter whether the other person knows or not. But in public, face-to-face, -face, if you're in a public meeting, you're fair game. And you would think that this, uh, this city council member uh, would, uh, would, would have actually known that. But she sought to have the prosecutor prosecute you. What did the, uh, what did the Yamhill County DA finally decide? 
the DA decided that, um, you know, it wasn't really what the law was intended to cover, is what I believe that the ruling was. Um, oddly enough, I haven't actually received a copy of the ruling myself. I have public records requests with the Yamhill County Sheriff Department and the district attorney that haven't really been answered uh, within this period of time. And um, so they've answered the questions for the Oregonian and the Newburgh Graphic, uh, I, apparently, and even Elise Holloman, but I haven't really gotten a copy of the decision myself. I'm just going off the hearsay of what was published in the Oregonian. Yeah. Well, and, and the Oregonian didn't exactly do you any favors, did they? Did they, uh, did they no. paint you as the good guy in this or the bad guy? You know, I, I, they actually gave me a little bit more positive coverage, I suppose, uh, at least in regards to, to accurately representing my perspective on the matter. Um, I do think that they left out a lot of information. I made a, a very lengthy video showing the full uh, comment I, I provided to them. Um, but, you know, in general, the, the Newberg Graphic article very much makes it seem like I'm organizing harassment. The Oregonian article, to some degree, you know, is, is showing uh, Elise Holloman's claims that I'm organizing harassment against her, which is, which is simply untrue. I've published the information, and uh, other people have decided to contact uh, the city, uh, city council telephone lines, I believe, and sent emails uh, voicing their um, criticism of it. Uh, now, I don't know about what threats actually are, are taking place. It could just be that people are worrying things very, you know, and, strongly. And by the I way, know there was Holloman, audio that was released, but Terry, I don't Ms. really Holloman know who made that. Ms. is welcome to come on this show if she wants to and describe the threat she got. I don't endorse threatening anybody in public office uh, to try to get them to change either. their mind. On the other hand, uh, I know that liberals and progressives will often claim that they've been threatened because somebody called the phone and left a message that was a very pointed, very blunt message, but not one that truly threatened. And she can make that claim with or without any kind of proof. Let's get to the, the, the heart of your story, though, because that's what you wanted to get in front of people. What was it you were saying about the Newburgh Downtown Coalition, this supposed charity, and what its real role is in the community that you live in? Yes, that's a recently published article. Um, the Newburgh Downtown Coalition is uh, a 501c3 charity, which claims, you know, to, to the state that it's about historical, it's a historical society, historical preservation. But really what it does is it operates as a business league for a very small number of uh, businesses there on First Street, Newburgh, uh, mostly bars, to be honest. Um, and they, they do a lot of events to, to market their personal business interests, and they get grant money uh, to also support their advertisements of their businesses, and even created a gift card program, which can only be used at their businesses. Well, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with promoting your own business, but you think they play a political role as well. Am I right? That's, that's correct. There's a number of businesses in the area that have told me that they use their, their, their influence in the money, really, that, that they control over these funds uh, to pressure their businesses to uh, align with their political ideology, to hang the, you know, the transracial pride flags in their windows and uh, put other you know statements out as well and you think that this newburgh downtown coalition is trying to as you put it illegally divert public monies from the city of newburgh to a small number of businesses that are owned by members of the coalition that's correct and it's especially worse because not only is it in my opinion a fraudulent nonprofit that is not doing legitimate charity activities um but a lot of the actual city councilors, the members of the budget committee who determined, you know, who was going to get the uh, ARPA COVID-19 relief money, it, they were all involved with Newburgh Downtown Coalition. A lot of them were, at least. 
And, uh, in fact, um, the, uh, the executive director of the Downtown Coalition, uh, she's also been the, the president at various times, but like, she was literally the chair of the budget committee. And they did a secret vote to determine which businesses were going to get their, their funding um, provided by the city. So we don't even know who voted for what, which I also find to be illegal. Well, and it is, Carrie, because I know the public meetings law relatively well. And the public meetings law at its very essence says all decisions made by public bodies have to be made in public. Now, if they're deciding on a personnel issue, like whether to fire somebody or whether to hire somebody, they can do that in executive session. But if they're going to be spending public money, they're supposed to do it in front of the public, vote publicly, have the discussions be public so that the public can know exactly how its money is being spent. That's Kerry Martell. He is the publisher and editor for the Yamhill Advocate. He was threatened with arrest because he merely recorded the words of an elected public official who didn't like that and didn't like the response she got from the public when she was called out. And again, she's invited to come on the program as well. Coming up, your phone calls, your emails, and don't get too excited about those new incentives to buy a battery car in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. We'll detail that next. When you can fry an egg on the sidewalk. I'm making breakfast. You want some eggs? When your AC is on 24 hours a day. I am begging you, put the air conditioner on. And when your legs stick to the seats of your car. No, I can't feel my legs! It's too damn hot. You know why? Global warming. Allegedly. This is the Global Warming Minute on the Lars Larson Show. It's Global Warming Day. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I thought we'd use that as an introduction because, yes, there are people out there who thoroughly believe that the United States and the world are headed into global warming, climate change, whatever they're calling it these days. Although cold seems to be a bigger problem in the United States these days than global warming does. But because of that, You've got people like Joe Biden and apparently the United States Congress that believe we have to make people buy electric cars. And before they actually outlaw the sale of gasoline and diesel-powered internal combustion engines, ICE engines, they plan to offer a whole bunch of your money to people, most of them wealthy people, who will go out and buy a battery car if they get the proper incentive. At least that's the belief. So in the badly named Inflation Reduction Act, passed by the Congress, there is tens of billions of dollars uh, to fund solar panels. There are tens of billions of dollars to, to fund windmills, most of which will be bought from China. And there are also monies in there to provide incentives for people to buy electric vehicles, e-vehicles powered by batteries. And I know that a lot of people got very excited about this. They said, why, look at this. Some of the old incentives to buy an electric car were running out. Some of the manufacturers had actually topped out on the total number of incentives that could be paid. So the Congress said, well, let's let's keep that deal out there so that we can actually give people other people's money, taxpayer money, to give them an incentive to buy an e-car. Well, before you get too excited, there was a great piece that was put together by Reason.com. Now, Reason.com is a publication of the Cato Institute, more of a libertarian group. So it's one that I completely identify with. I've got no other dog in the fight than that. Uh, I don't get any money from them. I don't do advertising for them. I'm just a big admirer of what they publish at Reason.com. But I thought they put together the best list of all the reasons why, if you're getting excited 
about the incentives for buying an electric vehicle, uh, just hold that thought for a moment until you hear the following. The Inflation Reduction Act, which put almost $400 billion toward the stated goal of cutting U.S. carbon emissions 40% in the next seven years. Now, if you say, how are we going to cut 40% when in many parts of the United States, even though we've become much better about output of CO2 and those kinds of things, and they're outlawing coal-fired uh, power plants and all the rest of that, it's going to be a disaster for us, just as it is a disaster in many parts of Western Europe. But consider, they say, we're going to make this change. We're going to reduce carbon emissions 40% by the year 2030, just seven years from now. Now, here's the incentive. The incentive that's been in place for a little bit more than a decade is that if you bought an electric car, you could claim a tax credit, meaning that even if you didn't pay any taxes, they would pay you the money of up to $7,500. However, each of the automobile makers, and the most notable ones are Tesla, General Motors, and Toyota, could only get 200,000 of the credits. And all of them, Tesla, General Motors, and Toyota, had all hit the limit of 200,000 credits, 200,000 vehicles for which other taxpayers usually not as well healed because most of the electric cars were being bought by people who have bigger incomes and usually the electric car is not their daily driver it's just one of two or three or four or five or six or eight or ten or twelve cars that they have in their garage or their driveway well the so-called inflation reduction act removes the cap that says you can you can get more credits for selling more of these cars and they introduce a brand new credit of four thousand dollars to buy a used electric vehicle and they say see this is going to make it possible for people to buy these cars well consider this there are a number of catches that were written into the so-called inflation reduction act number one vehicles have to be subject to a final assembly requirement well what does that mean it says the car's final assembly must have happened in North America. Notice they call it North America. They don't call it the United States of America because it would include Mexico. That single restriction, according to reason, as you see from the Department of Energy's list of eligible vehicles, automatically cuts down on the number of cars that qualify. You say, oh, you want to buy that car? Great. You don't get the incentive, though, because it wasn't assembled in North America. And then starting yesterday, starting the 1st of January, individuals who make over 150000 a year, households over 300000 the households that have mostly been buying these electric vehicles, no longer qualify for the credit. Now, they say that electric cars that retail for more than $55,000 or trucks and SUVs over 80000 are not eligible. You say, well, that's not a problem. I'll just buy one that's cheaper. The problem is, according to Kelly Blue Book, the average price, the average price for an EV is more than $65,000. So they set a limit saying, but you can only buy a new one if it is less than $55,000. And the average electric vehicle costs over $65,000. Then on top of that, there's another limitation. Materials used to make the battery. Certain materials like lithium, cobalt, manganese, nickel, graphite, that are all essential to, buy, to making those lithium-ion batteries starting this year. Qualifying for half of the credit, of the $7,500 credit, requires that 40% of those minerals be sourced from the United States or a country with which it has a free trade agreement. To qualify for the other half, 50% of the battery's parts have to be sourced domestically 
or from a free trade partner. Problem is, most of the cars don't qualify. And then in December, the Treasury Department suspended the mineral requirement through March when it issues final rules. But the law requires that starting next year, no battery parts can be sourced from a foreign entity of concern like Russia or China. The problem is China controls 60 to 80 percent of the world's EV minerals, and it makes more than 75 percent of all the EV batteries, according to Reason.com. The U.S. imports more than half of every single one of those critical minerals. So they've written a tax incentive, a tax credit incentive that essentially doesn't exist because to qualify for it, you have to make less than $150,000. Then you have to be able to afford a car that on average costs $65,000. Then you have to buy one that costs less than $55,000. And you got to make sure that the batteries are made in the United States when 75 to 80% of the batteries are not made in the United States. They're made in China. And China doesn't qualify because they're an entity of concern. Now, because of the delay, most automakers, says Reason.com, will be able to offer half the credit for two months. And then for the rest of the year, only certain models are going to qualify, forcing customers to check each and every one. And if your car does not match it, you may march in there saying, I'm going to buy this $60,000 electric vehicle because I'm going to get a $4,000 credit. Or maybe you'll qualify for the $7,500 credit, and then you find out, I'm not going to qualify for the credit at all. And if that sounds like the kind of scam that Democrats usually run in America, I think you're absolutely right. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your phone calls and emails. I mean, like a lot of you, I would imagine that during the pandemic, uh, there weren't a lot of people flying anywhere, and everybody I knew who was still flying a lot talked about what an unpleasant experience it was, to put it mildly. And then we said, well, but the airlines are going to get back to normal. They'll ditch the masks. uh, They'll get the planes back in the air. And as I understand it, air travel has actually come back close to what it was before the pandemic. However, over the holidays, over the Christmas and New Year's holidays, we saw an absolute disaster of flight cancellations. And then we started seeing the numbers that they seem to be focused on one airline in particular. And Adam Angievsky joins me now to talk about that. Adam, of course, is the CEO and the founder of Open the Books and the fired former columnist. He should wear that as a badge of honor at Forbes.com. Adam, welcome back and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Lars. Thanks for having me on. I mean, you don't mind me mentioning that Forbes fired you for telling the truth, do you? (laughs) No, it was all about the Fauci financials. We told the truth. Forbes pulled the plug. I'll tell you what, uh, what do you imagine we're going to find me in as a side issue before we get back to Southwest Airlines? You know, Twitter and Elon Musk is promising to release the Fauci files this week. We may find out more about that little guy than than we would ever want to have known. Well, it's going to be very interesting. Look, we're holding, you know, Elon Musk tweeted the other day about Dr. Anthony Fauci's wife, Christine Grady, who's the chief bioethicist at the National Institutes of Health. And Lars, on your program, we've talked about that for the past 12 months. And as a matter of fact, we've dug really deep. We're holding a 48-page file of her positions on the issues as her husband spearheaded national coronavirus pandemic response public health policy. She held his back on the ethics policies of, uh, you know, they live a conflict of interest at home, around the breakfast table, at the office, and around the dinner table. 
There's a reason that people don't like nepotism. I don't like nepotism. I've seen it too often in government. And in this case, having somebody in charge of the ethics of an agency, uh, but but is in a marriage relationship with the man who's actually making the policy. I'd love to know whether or not her department had anything to say about the ethics of, say, gain of function being done in China when it was forbidden in the United States and also pushing to reopen gain of function uh, when Trump became president in 2017. But subject for another day. Southwest Airlines, how much did they get during in subsidies over the last two and a half years because of the pandemic? $7.2 billion, Lars. It's a stunning number. Absolutely ridiculous. So there's 54,000 Southwest employees, and the United States taxpayer through Congress was very generous with Southwest Airlines. And so because, you know, they received a lot from taxpayers, they owed us a lot. And obviously, they couldn't even keep a plane in the air over Christmas. No, and in fact, the the problem does seem, I saw one number, and Adam, maybe you've seen differently. I'm talking to Adam Andrzejewski from OpenTheBooks.com. But it said that of all the the thousands of cancellations we heard about, about 83% of them were due to one airline, Southwest Airlines. And the other airlines, some of them didn't account for, for much of any of the cancellations. And, and in total, all the other airlines in America except Southwest accounted for maybe 17% of the cancellations. What made Southwest so very poorly equipped to handle holiday travel? So they didn't invest in their infrastructure. So we wanted to know after $7.2 billion just over the last couple of years from taxpayers into the company, where did they spend it? And our oversight has led to uh, U.S. Rep. Nancy Mace calling for a, when the Republicans take Congress right here, uh, for a forensic audit of exactly how Southwest spent that money. It was spent on payroll and benefits. Um, That's how it was supposed to be spent. But what that does, when when the taxpayers cover your payroll for an entire year, it's on average $133,000 per each of the 54,000 employees. That frees up a lot of cash, a lot of cash to make critical infrastructure upgrades and improvements, for example. Lars, starting the year 2021 in the first quarter, Southwest was the first airline to return to profitability. Just in that quarter, they made a $116 million profit in the first quarter of 2021. They had $14.3 billion to start 2021 of cash on hand. We looked at their annual report. What did they do? They didn't upgrade the IT infrastructure. They expanded their airport footprint. For example, in February of 2021, they expanded from Midway also into O'Hare right here in Illinois in Chicago. And they did this You know, this was part of company policy around the country. So on infrastructure, they couldn't keep up with their existing airport footprint. They expanded the footprint. And hence, when the weather hit, you know, this Christmas, they couldn't keep a plane in the air. You know, it's it's funny. I'm glad you mentioned that about how fungible money is. Because if you came to me and said, Lars, you know, your, your house is looking kind of poor. It needs a roof. It needs a paint job. It needs windows. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, you pay my mortgage for the next year and I'll get all those things fixed. So you pay my right. mortgage for the year. And at the end of the year, you say, how come you don't have a new roof or new windows or anything else? You said, uh, I said, because I was spending it on other things. That's effectively right. what they did. And they made a deal with the U.S. government to say, we'll take the support, the subsidies to help pay our payrolls when revenues are down. Uh, but you expected them to keep keep the um, operation modernized because they weren't lacking for airplanes or crews or pilots. 
they just didn't have the computers to be able to match up the crews and the pilots and the airplanes? It's incredible. So 15,000 flights, if you do the math on that, north of 1.5 million travelers were inconvenienced over the holidays. My family were, you know, we're a family of five. We're five of those people. So our flight was looked like it was running on time. We weren't really paying attention to the national headlines, and it was early in the, in the crisis. So we went to the airport. We checked our bags at the curb. The flight was canceled when we should have been boarding. But our flags, our, our bags flew to Miami eventually, and we never did. <laughs> Which means even if you'd found alternate accommodation or alternate <laughs> flight accommodations, then you'd have to figure out after we get to our vacation, our holiday <laughs> vacation, I got to figure out how to get our bags, right? That's right. And flights, in order to get to Miami after that, flights were literally $2,900 a seat. So that wasn't happening. So all of this, and how does Southwest explain all this, that they had all this cash, they had this commercial success, which I, I hope for every American company to have commercial success, where you're making $100 million a quarter, good for you. How do they explain the fact that they didn't upgrade their, their IT, their, their computer technology, just so they can match up crews and planes and pilots? Well, Lars, that is the question. You just nailed it. And they should be hauled in front of Congress, that CEO, and forced to answer the questions on the record. They have not. They have, they, they're just saying that their, their IT infrastructure is old. They're not saying why they didn't upgrade it. And as you know, the, the pilots' unions, the, the baggage handlers, the flight attendants, they've been screaming about this for years. So this is a crisis right in the C-suite at Southwest. They spend $7.2 billion of U.S. taxpayer money. And, and because of executive management leadership decisions, they can't even keep a plane in the air over Christmas. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. And, and frankly, I know people are going to say when they hear us talking about this, they're going to say, well, Lars, why is it any of the public's business or the government's business? Because we gave them, our, our representatives That's gave right. them $7.2 billion. The minute you write a check for somebody's uh, endeavor, whatever the endeavor is, you get to have said something to say about how they do it. I mean, if you're writing the check for your kid's college one of these days, Adam, you're probably going to say you're not going to be studying pottery and, and uh, button sorting. That's right. And, and so when U.S. taxpayers put that kind of largesse into a company, you know, it's kind of like when you're playing sports in Little League. If everyone gets a trophy, why, why practice hard? Why Absolutely right. That's Adam Andrzejewski, the CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. If you want to see the actual numbers, $7.2 billion to Southwest Airlines, and they have thousands of flight cancellations. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you all on the first weekday, first workday of the brand new year, 2023. Glad to get your phone calls and your emails. This segment of the show is brought to you by NickShivers.com for an instant offer to sell your home immediately. No showing, no hassles, and you get to pick the closing date. NickShivers.com for details. Now, our Twitter poll question. Do you think a Republican-controlled House will make 2023 better than 22? I would say just a bit better, but probably not a whole lot, given the disarray of the Republican Party on Capitol Hill right now. They still haven't figured out who's going to be Speaker of the House. They promised that they hope to have that decided by tomorrow. 
this is not the kind of organization that we, we need. Ordinarily, it's more the kind of organization I would associate with Democrats and liberals. Our Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. To your calls now. Let's start with Eric in Seattle listening on KVI and the Radio Northwest Network. Hey, Eric, welcome to the program. Well, hey, Lars, how's it going? It's not going too badly. You called in because you heard me talking about those phony tax credits that Joe Biden has purportedly uh, put out there for people to buy battery-powered cars. That's right. And they're talking about it being a uh, climate change kind of thing. Um, But really, it's just a way to get people to buy more cars. You know, if we wanted, uh, if climate change was the real goal, uh, we would be investing in, like, mass transit um, but this is just another government marketing thing, like uh, the Inflation Reduction Act you were talking about. Like, yeah, maybe that reduces the deficit a little bit or something, but it's not, not doing anything about inflation. And so it just bugs me that the government is, like, putting out this dishonest marketing and not, you know, not really doing things that will be effective uh, toward their stated goals. Okay, now you mentioned mass transit as a solution. Eric, you, you just dangled red meat in front of me. Uh, so I'm going to have oh, to yeah. take the, I'm going to have to take the bait. Can I ask you a question? Would it be fair to sure. say that both Portland and Seattle have committed to spend tens of billions of dollars on transit over the next few years? Yeah, in Seattle, um, Sound Transit Three was the uh, the thing that came up here, increasing people's car tabs um, in order to build, uh, you know, extend the light rail and build more mass transit. Yeah, Fifty-two billion dollars. Um, uh, or it maybe it's gone up to 54 by now. Portland is spending billions of dollars, not in the tens of billions yet. So with all that money, and would it be fair to say that in the last 10 years, they have spent tens of billions of dollars on transit? Yeah, I, I, I hear you there. Um, I no, think no, it's but you, fair... haven't, you haven't seen where, I, where I'm going yet. Is it fair to okay. say that tens of bill or billions of dollars have been spent the last 10 years to enhance transit in Portland and Seattle? Sure, yeah. Okay. Now, do you know what's happened to per capita ridership? Do you know you know what per capita ridership is where you measure it against population? Because if you have a town yeah. and the town's a million people and you get a certain amount of transit ridership and the town grows to two million people, you would expect transit ridership, whatever it is, to double because you've doubled the population. Do you know what's been happening to transit ridership over the last three decades in the Northwest? I'm going to need you to tell me the facts on this one. I don't have that one locked and loaded. It's going down. It has been going down, not just because of the pandemic. They like to use that as the most recent excuse, but it's been going down for the last couple of decades when measured against population. So even though you have more crowded cities, more expensive parking, more expensive gasoline, more expensive licensing and insurance and everything else that goes with owning a car, per capita ridership of transit has declined. Now, what would make you think that something that has had billions of dollars poured into it, tens of billions to be poured into it in the next uh, decade or so, if it's going down in, in ridership, why would you ex- see it as part of the solution? Oh, uh, Because it's it, uh, the less uh, emissions. Like, we're talking about vehicle emissions. No, but if nobody and- rides it, Eric, how does it reduce emissions if per capita ridership is going down and not up? It depends on if there's a correlation with, uh, like, vehicle, like, private vehicle miles traveled. 
Well, um, well like Eric, going, if, if like, what you're saying, no, but if I understand, and I, I, I think I understand what you're saying, that if you get more people to take the bus or the train instead of driving their car, so these are people who are going to go somewhere today. They're going to go shopping. They're going to go to school. They're going to go to work. If they take a train or a bus instead of a car, that would reduce emissions. But transit ridership is down, not up, and not just during the pandemic. Yeah, I kind of think if you build it, they will come. And like the more <laughs> that gets built, the more opportunity people will have to use it. Um, do you know that? So do you know that see. not a single light rail system, not in Portland, not in Seattle, has even met? the predictions that were made by the transit agency, they always make a good case. They go to the federal government and say, give us some billions of dollars. We'll build this thing, and then people will ride it. And they give them numbers. Do you know that both Portland and Seattle have lied? They've said, we're going to have this many people ride it. And then when they finally get the thing built, that many people do not ride it. Yeah, which depends on which year you're looking at. I remember the old numbers. No, no. uh, Look, Look over decades. I'm not talking about one year. Because if you look back over the pandemic year, obviously things changed for a short period of time. But over the last couple of decades, per capita transit ridership has been falling, not rising. I'll give you the last word. Got it. So, all right. Um, oh, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, ultimately, my point was about the, like, the bad marketing, the dishonest marketing, and like maybe my means or my uh, idea of how to reach... Uh, Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday. Always glad to take your phone calls. And in the brand new year of 2023, I'm looking forward to a great year for America. Now, if we could just get some more changes in Congress, maybe a change at the White House, although the only change that seems likely at this point would be Kamala Harris becoming president, which is, I think, even more of a nightmare than Joe Biden has been. But Welcome to 2023, and if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS on the Radio Northwest Network. And if you're a naysayer, we put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I thought we'd talk with Mark Harmsworth, our friend from the Washington Policy Center, about what in the world Seattle, and I guess by extension what what Portland and some of the other bigger cities of the Northwest should do and what they could do about their unbelievable crime rates and the fact that police and courts and prosecutors do not seem capable of doing what they were doing just a few years ago. Mark, Happy New Year to you, and welcome back to the program. Happy New Year, Lars, and thanks for having me on. So what is the likelihood that we're going to see any serious change in all of the various circumstances that you outline writing at the Washington Policy Center that have made this crime wave sweep over the Northwest? Well, actually, I think there is a reasonable chance that the legislature may be forced by initiative to undo some of the radical things that they passed just a few years ago. Now, you may recall that they they changed the um, standard for an officer to pull you over from 
uh, reasonable suspicion to probable cause, which is a much higher standard. And so an officer uh, that maybe sees a bad guy jump in a car and take off down the road um, uh, nowadays is, is, is holding back because they're afraid that they don't have the probable cause that, that the individual is actually stealing a car. And we've seen multiple examples of uh, the police now, and I've spoken with many uh, Snohomish County sheriffs. I even did a ride-along with one who expressed his frustration in that many people now just don't even pull over when the cops try and pull them over for running a red light or, or a broken tail light or what have you, which is where they get a lot of their drug enforcement crime from. Um, the, the, you know, the officers are the people just don't pull over now. They just take off and they're not allowed to pursue them under the current law. However, there is this initiative now, um, initiative I-1474, which is asking the legislature to change that back. So through that process, I think there's a chance that we could undo some of this insanity that we're seeing in, uh, in crime enforcement in our cities. You know, uh, the thing the thing I think is missing right now, Mark, I, I agree with you. If the legislature sees this initiative and sees the signatures coming in, eventually they could get around to it. But wouldn't you be humiliated if you were if you had run to be the people's one of the people's representatives in Olympia and and you went down there and you said, we're going to pass all these laws. We made it hard for the police to chase people. And it resulted in real harm that you could see every day. Wake up, turn on the news. You hear on the radio, all these crimes are happening. And you realize I was part of that. Am I really representing the people? Wouldn't it be humiliating to have to have the people call you on it and say, change this back? because you weren't smart enough to do it on your own? Oh, I, I would think so, absolutely. I would think that if you were a representative from one, particularly one of the more suburban rural areas, I know in Seattle there is a very strong uh, opinion around this, but in, in these other areas where we're starting to see these crime levels come up and you're being held accountable um, for that from the voters, I would think you as a, a representative would be standing there saying, yeah, I made this mess and I'm not prepared to fix it because of my partisan uh, proclivities or my uh, or my uh, uh, my uh, commitment to the party. I, I think it would be very difficult to explain that to a constituent because we're supposed to go down there and represent the people that elected us at, at the end of the day. And, and if we're not doing what they're asking, then they deserve to be to move removed from office well in fact mark uh i i would even i would even fault my own business i mean this year i mark 48 years in broadcast journalism and part of the job of journalists is to go to to lawmakers uh, and public officials and say to them this is happening it appears to be the result of your actions what are you going to do to fix it and if they felt that kind of heat right now uh and and had reporters bugging them about these things and putting stories on the air. We wanted to talk to Senator so-and-so about who was one of the key votes for this, but he refuses to stop and answer questions and he runs away with his coat held over his head. That kind of stuff would, would push a change faster. But I don't see that kind of activity by people in the news media. Do you? Um, I, I see some. I mean, Brandy Cruz has done some of this, obviously. Um, She's good. We've got... We've got yeah, and we've got put we've put stuff up around this, trying to highlight it. Um, one of the articles we just put up was around Bill Cagle. He owns uh, 
uh, Beacon Plumbing and the fact that he was able to recover one of his trucks despite the police pulling him over while he was in pursuit of the truck um, <laughs> is comical at one level and really sad at another level. Uh, the only reason that he got a truck back is because he had a GPS tracker on it and he was able to track it down. But the police told him they were not allowed to pursue because of the state legislature. And, you know, their hands are tied at many levels. And so, you know, there needs to be pressure. And I know that uh, there's been Bellevue City Council members have been writing letters to the editor and putting material out and talking to constituents about getting this change. But we need our local officials really to stop putting pressure on the legislature to make some common sense changes and get this thing fixed. Well, see, I could see another uh, avenue too, Mark, and that is, you know that a lot of times uh, I'm watching the Biden administration monkey with laws by sending out guidance, like the Congress just told the Pentagon, you know, you can't have the vaccine mandate. And then they got guidance from the Biden administration that that doesn't apply to National Guard. And you're like, what? It doesn't apply to the National Guard? I mean, most of the time the National Guard is under the control of the states. But when it's federalized, it's it's part of the Pentagon, right? And the money is paid by the Pentagon. So why are they not held to that? Well, because of guidance we got. Imagine if Ferguson, the attorney general, for all these Democrats who say, well, the police are just misinterpreting the rule. They can still chase bad guys. Fine. How about how about having A.G. Ferguson come out with an opinion that says they are misinterpreting the law? They are allowed to chase the bad guys. We could help to to put a dent in the problem right now if he were to do that. But again, I don't see Ferguson doing that. Do you? No, he's not doing that. I think another thing that we could be doing is you talk about these rules that a lot of these agencies are making. They're making the rules under the authority that the legislature has released to them. So the legislature has released its authority to an agency. Uh, many states have um, a process where these agencies have to report back for the rules that they've created to the legislature for approval in the following uh, legislative session. I'd love to see that in Washington state so that the people's elected representatives, and also Oregon too, are able then to vote on these rules that these unelected bureaucrats are making because a lot of the confusion around this is coming from these agencies that are making these rules, and we want people to weigh in on them. Yeah, and the agencies are unaccountable. They're unelected. Most most members of the public couldn't name an agency head in Olympia, and I don't blame them for that. But when you trust them to do that kind of thing and they know they're not going to be called into account, then they'll go out and do all kinds of crazy things. That's Mark Harmsworth, who's director of the Small Business Center at the Washington Policy Center. Mark, it's a pleasure. Back in a moment, I want to tell you about a transgender bathroom policy that just got flushed by a federal appeals court. It may have implications everywhere in America. That's next. It's the Radio Northwest Network and the Lars Larson Show. With each new day in this crazy and somewhat disturbing country of ours comes that one story. The headline that, when you hear it, only one response comes to mind. Are you kidding me? You gotta be kidding me. You gotta be kidding me. You must be joking. No, really, it's true. Now, here's Lars with today's Are You Kidding Me moment. Are you kidding me? And really, it comes in the form of a very blunt question. But uh, And I know it's a personal question, but let me ask you this. If you have young children, especially female young children, in your home or in your family, would you expect that when they go to school, to a public school run by your local government, that when they use the restroom, when they use the locker room, that they will not be undressing in front of young men or boys? Uh, that's the question that it was actually put in front of a federal appeals court, and they came up with quite a decision. 
Now, it only applies in the federal district in that area, in this case, Florida. But I think it should apply all over the United States. Let me get to that in just a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show in this brand new year of 2023. Glad to get your phone calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Our rule for 26 years now has been if you're a naysayer, you disagree with my point of view on whatever it is we happen to be talking about, naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find the question, a brand new one every day, at Lars Larson Show on Twitter and at LarsLarson.com, our website. But let me go back to this federal appeals court decision in Florida, because for the last decade or so, there's been an ongoing question about what are called transgender people, and in this case, transgender children. Now, as far as I'm concerned, uh, it's very difficult to persuade me that a child can decide effectively whether or not they were born with one gender, boy or girl, and now they want to be a different gender. But in this case, we're told by the woke folks and the folks on the left that children are capable of making this decision. I don't believe that they are. And in fact, I'd point out that every other kind of consequential decision in life is denied to people who are under the age of 18. You can't sign a contract. Uh, in most cases, oh, you can't vote. Uh, you can't do most things that require some kind of mature decision. Still in all, there are parents out there. I think a lot of them do it because of the attention it brings on them, and I think a lot of the kids do it because of the attention it brings to them. Negative attention or positive attention, it's attention one way or another. Well, in one local school district in Florida, the school district said, we are not going to let transgender students use the bathroom of their choice. And I think this was the right decision, just so you're clear on where I stand on this one. The local school district says, if you're a biological boy, you use the little boy's room. If you're a biological girl, you use the little girl's room. You don't switch back and forth. You don't get your choice. Well, this was challenged. It was challenged before the Atlanta-based 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And they announced the decision. It wasn't a unanimous decision, nor would I have expected it to be. It was a 7-4 to four decision. It was announced the day before New Year's Eve. And they said that St. John's County School Board did not violate the U.S. Constitution, did not violate Title IX when they barred a transgender student known as Drew Adams from using the boys' bathrooms because Drew Adams is a biological girl, not a boy. Now, I know that some of you will say, but he identifies as a boy. Doesn't matter if he identifies as a boy. What matters is the privacy of everyone. And I think this is where society has said, we, we really, if you want to be, you call yourself by a different name, dress in a different fashion, say to people that you are a girl when in fact you were born a boy or vice versa. That may be up to you, but the privacy of everybody gets protected. And especially with Title IX, which was intended to make, put girls on an equal footing with young men, with boys, to say, you've got to be able to, to recognize the rights of both. Judge Barbara Lagoa, who wrote for the majority in this decision, said the school's bathroom policy, quote, advances the important governmental objective of protecting student privacy in school bathrooms. It doesn't get much more complicated than that. 
A policy can lawfully classify on the basis of biological sex without unlawfully discriminating on the basis of transgender status. Adams, who was born a girl, sued the school district, and this was now six years ago, when the student was a junior at the Allen Neese High School in Ponte Verde Beach, Florida. At the time, the district asked Adams to use single-stall, gender-neutral bathrooms or to use the girls' bathrooms at the school. Why? Because he was a girl. The school board's bathroom policy is clearly related to, indeed is almost a mirror of, its objective of protecting the privacy interests of students to use the bathroom away from the opposite sex and to shield their bodies from the opposite sex in the bathroom, which, like a locker room or a shower facility, is one of the spaces in a school where such bodily exposure is most likely to occur. This is the judge speaking. Ju judge Lagoa also wrote that the plain and ordinary meaning of sex in 1972, when Title IX went into effect, allows schools to provide separate bathrooms based on biological sex. Now, if you say, well, that's a form of discrimination. Absolutely, it's a form of discrimination. But you see, discrimination is not a bad thing. If you say, we have little girls, they would like to use the bathroom. Can they use a bathroom set aside just for little girls, biological girls? We have, we have little boys. We'd like to use the, them to use the bathrooms and the locker rooms and the other facilities that are set aside for boys. Society everywhere has made the decision that to safeguard the privacy of all, you divide based on biological gender. Now, what the judge went on to say was to accommodate transgender students, the school board has provided single-stall, sex-neutral bathrooms, which Title 19 neither requires nor prohibits. Nothing about this bathroom policy violates Title 9. Title 9 is the federal law that protects or prohibits sex-based discrimination in federally funded education settings. Judge Lagoa also warned that the ruling could transform schools' living facilities, locker rooms, showers, and sports teams into sex-neutral areas and activities. Whether Title IX should be amended to equate gender identity with transgender status with sex should be left to the Congress, not the courts. You know, I've been waiting for this forever. Because the Congress, to a large degree, has decided it doesn't want to do its job. And I apply that criticism to both Republicans and to Democrats, both conservatives and liberals. They don't want to do their job. They would rather have their jobs done by unelected bureaucrats who the public doesn't know, didn't vote for, and cannot hold to account. That way, the congressmen and congresswomen, uh, I don't know that we have any transgender members of the Congress yet, but who knows, uh, the, <laughs> we, we could see them soon. But when the Congress decides we don't really want to deal with these issues because when we do, we're going to make ourselves unpopular with at least somebody. Well, every time Congress or your state legislature passes a law, they're going to be unpopular with somebody. But thank God a federal appeals court has finally stood up and said, this is the end of it. And I'm glad to see it. And I hope the case goes all the way to the Supreme Court and is reaffirmed there. Glad to get your calls. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. If you were to tell me that you think that the mainstream news media kind of picks and chooses the kinds of stories that it wants to focus on, and that it treats them by different standards depending on who's the victim and who's the person suspected of doing the bad thing, I'd tell you you're absolutely right. There seem to be double standards all over the place. And there's a great example from New Year's Eve 
in New York City. So you've got the media capital, arguably the media capital of the United States, and in many ways the media capital of the world. And an incident happens on New Year's Eve when everybody's paying attention. Several New York City police officers attacked with a, well, the initial report said a machete. Turns out that it was a different kind of knife. I think I'm saying it right, kukuri. Uh, But that might tell us something about the person who's alleged to have done it. A 19-year-old by the name of Trevor Bickford. Well, I wanted to get the straight dope on this, so I want to bring on Josh Young, who is an award-winning playwright and journalist for the Post Millennial, uh, the place where Andy No and a number of other great writers are located. Josh, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for thanks for uh, for having me. So, tell us what you know about what happened on New Year's Eve in New York City when Trevor Bickford showed up with a big knife. And does it matter what kind of knife, whether it was a machete or a kukuri? Uh. I definitely think that the type of weapon matters. The kukri is uh, definitely a weapon you see um, in the Middle East. It has a history going back to the Mediterranean. I think it actually has a Greek origin. I recognized it, oddly enough, because it's um, talked about a lot in the book Dracula. It's, it's something that they talk about the Turks, because the Turks used as a weapon uh, in the sort of medieval times, uh, and that's how I first thought of, I thought of it. Um, so it's definitely a weapon that has a connection to um, Islam and a connection to sort of the, the, the Middle East. So I think and it's, it's peculiar that it does get commonly referred to as a machete, but that is definitely a kukri knife that he used uh, to attack these police officers. Well, and I'm glad you explained that because, you know, there are times where I think that people are in the word business. You're both a playwright and a journalist for a post-millennial. Words really matter. How you describe something matters. If you're trying to, say, hide the fact that this young man may well have been somebody radicalized as an Islamic extremist, and you say, but he used a machete, uh, and, and, somebody, you know, and, and people who hear that say, oh, well, that's different. If you say it's a kookery, if you're saying, and, and I think you're saying that you're probably saying it right, I'm not, um, that, that that would tell you something entirely different, wouldn't it? Yeah, very much so. Especially, I mean, it's peculiar because, so this, this kid, uh, I mean, he's a man. I shouldn't call him a kid. Uh, he's 19, but he's a Westerner. He's from Maine. And, I mean, it, it strikes me that it, was a, it probably was a very deliberate choice of his because his exposure to radical Islam is going to have been through mostly the Internet, mostly absorbing the culture through reading and through sort of uh, not a lot of primary sources. I mean, I, I'm sure he, had, uh, and his, he, was, he was apparently very, very devout and very, very, uh, radicalized, so I'm sure he uh, was involved in the community there. But but it's not like this is someone who is from Iran. Uh, so this is this is something that his choice of the weapon and and his whole motivation is definitely uh, an exposure via words and language. His his radicalization would have most certainly happened in some part via uh, deliberate deliberate access to what he's reading and picking up uh, online, and I think I think also in print. Well, and in fact, uh, you know, just in case people think we're speculating about this, the authorities are the ones who are saying that he is he was already being monitored as a radical Islamic extremist at the time that he carried out the attack on New Year's Eve in New York City. Right. Yeah, uh, big time. Yeah, this is at this point, it's it was actually kind of funny because he was on um, the the first of the NYPD confirmed someone high level said that he was on a watch list and that he was being uh, looked at for uh, having recently converted to Islam and that even someone had said he had expressed interest in going to Afghanistan. And then very soon after, uh, it came out of, a, I think, the Boston office, which is very strange 
because this, this guy was from Maine. But the Boston office, there was a Boston FBI office that confirmed he was on something called the Guardian watch list, which is, again, a watch list for uh, people who are, you know, on a list because they could be radical Islamic fundamentalist terrorists. So, well, and in uh, fact, in fact, Josh, l- let me ask you about that, because I noticed and that was that was next on my list to ask you about was the Boston office of the FBI, because Boston has some mosques in that city that have been tied to previous terrorist attacks by Islamic radicals, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's heartbreaking, but true. I, I, I think it's not surprising at all. I mean, we think of the Boston bomber. We think of the Boston Marathon. It's uh, I mean, There's been there's still a lot of investigation as to what the connection was, but there's certainly no ambiguity about the the um, the Boston having the centralized location of of, uh, certainly a hotbed for radicalization. Uh, But in fairness, uh, that's also uh, very common in New York, too. Uh, I spent most of my life in living in New York City. And, uh, you know, while he could have gone there just to pull off this attack. There's also any number of there's any number of communities he could have been involved in there where he was also looking to continue his, for lack of a better putting it, radical radicalization. Well, see, and that's the part that's always been a bit of a mystery to me. I'm talking to Josh Young, who's a journalist for the Post Millennial and also an award winning playwright. Is that if if I were connected to a particular church, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Protestant Christian, but if I were connected to a church and that church somehow got connected to some illegal or violent activity, I would think the, the first thing an American church would want to do if it were connected to those kinds of things is is show, you know, the community, show the public. No, no, that's not us. You know, yes, there was a crazy person from amidst our congregation who went off and did these things, but we're not part of that. And yet I don't hear I don't hear the the, the mosques uh, doing that big of a pushback against that. And and you would think they would want to shed that kind of association if they could. And maybe you've seen it differently, but but that's the way I've seen it. No, I think that's 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 an entirely accurate observation. And it's kind of heartbreaking. I mean, this attack that he that happened that Bigford uh, uh, perpetrated obviously happened in New York. And ever since 9-11, you know, it's so many years removed and it's decades now, and it seems like it's a, a memory that many folks have lost. But uh, certainly there was a big controversy. Uh, soon after 9-11, there was going to be a mosque that was going to open uh, near yep. um, the, and, uh, near the, ground the, the zero. Site and, yep. Exactly. And there, and there again, there was a very much a lack of any kind of acknowledgement of that, you know, we're here, but, we, you know, we're saw that there's the radical portions of, of, of this religion that, that have, you know, that have gone and, and done this terrorist act. And I think that, for me, has been the, the sort of um, linchpin for this, unfortunately, the sort of phenomenon, especially in sort of the Islamist community, where there's not only a lack of an effort to um, purge the radical part of the, of the group, you actually have an apologist for it, you know, that even eventually get elected into Congress. Uh, which is kind of, you know, heartbreaking and odd when, you, you know, obviously there's a few at this point, but the, who are apologists and, and, and instead say that it's, you know, that they don't have, that it's, that it's really, it's all part of some sort of oppression or systemic hierarchies of oppression that is, and that the, these, these groups don't need to apologize for this radical portion of its, of its uh, religious base, which I think is very unfortunate. Yeah, it really is. Because, I mean, you, you don't find too many analogs to that in, in the Christian world. I mean, the Westboro Baptist Church, you know, cre- you know these are lunatic ends of, say, the Christian faith. But, but they're distanced by virtually everybody. And, uh, everybody. and you kind of want—what's that? I was just saying everybody. I mean, that's such a great example. 
I mean, so many churches went out of their way to appropriately marginalize and purge this Westboro, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church. That's such a great example. Well, I just say that because I've talked to Fred Phelps on the program before and said, people said, why do you talk to people like that? And I said, because I think sunlight is the best disinfectant, and I think it tends to work very, very well. you got to read Josh's story. It's Josh Young at the Post Millennial. Josh, it's a pleasure to have you on the program, and thanks so much, and congratulations on your award-winning playwright work as well. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your phone calls and emails. It's 866-439-5277. Naysayers go first. Happy New Year to you, and welcome to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network, proudly serving the Pacific Northwest states for the past 23 years now. Glad to have you on board. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's here at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers always go first at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And this segment is brought to you by Valhalla Tea, a perfect gift for anybody helping veterans with every bag sold at ValhallaT.com. That's ValhallaT.com. Let's go to George in Tacoma, listening on the Radio Northwest Network. George, Happy New Year to you. What's on your mind? Happy New Year with two more years of Biden. Yes, um, sad to say. Yeah, I was just, uh, I was listening to you and you were talking about the delayed flights over the holidays. Yep. And uh, my thought has been, um, with the extreme weather conditions that we've had across the nation, uh, I don't find it terribly surprising to see so many delays. And because people were inconvenienced, at least uh, they're alive for 2023. Well, except that, George, first of all, when you say they're inconvenienced, if your family has spent a, a sum of money, Uh, expecting to go from point A to point B in time for certain things over the holidays. I understand that the airline's ticket is not a guarantee that they will get you there. They will do their best. But when 83% of the flight cancellations fell to one airline that is not 83% of the airline business, and the other 17% of cancellations were on all the other airlines in America, doesn't that suggest that there is a problem with that airline in particular? Well, yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, for instance, George, yeah. let's say we had a big snowstorm. I know that upstate New York, Buffalo and all just got buried. And if you said, well, a whole bunch of grocery stores are closed down. So people are inconvenienced because they can't get food. and They apparently didn't put food aside knowing that there was a storm coming. But if 83% of the grocery store closures were one particular grocery store chain that was not 83% of the grocery stores in America, you'd say, well, that store seems to have a problem. And, and yeah. if you then say, yeah, but what, what business is it of ours as citizens to question how a private business either does it, doesn't do its job? Well, when the U.S. Congress gives Southwest Airlines $7.2 billion to continue their operations during the pandemic, So the U.S. taxpayer has $7.2 billion that was put into Southwest without a promise of anything coming back. We didn't get free airline tickets out of it. We didn't get anything. Uh, But the, the, the desire was to keep private businesses operating. So if you give them all this money to keep operating and their system breaks down because they chose not to modernize their computers 
because they have a complicated system. It's been explained to me that South most airlines use what's called a hub and spoke method. So you have, say, a hub for United at in Chicago, and you got a hub, I think, for Delta in Atlanta, and then you've got a hub for American down in Dallas. So they use a hub and spoke. Apparently, Southwest uses a point-to-point system that's much more complicated to match up the crew with the pilots with the airplanes. And, and because they didn't modernize their computers, they end up canceling. Most of the canceled flights were Southwest, more than 80%. Well, that pretty much explains it then. And uh, I hope that, uh, more peop- that the people in power investigate it and get the problem fixed then. Yeah, well, that, that or, or suggest to Southwest, if we gave you all this money, and you didn't do what you were because the goal of the goal of the American taxpayer gifting them all this money was to keep them operating. And if they got the money, but then they didn't keep operating, it seems to me they have reneged on the deal. And and maybe they owe some of that money back. Maybe the penalty is you give us give us back fifty percent of the monies that were given to you because you made big pro- you made profits. Uh, you kept in uh-huh. operation, you got your payroll paid, and you made other choices that turned out to be bad choices. And when I, I hate to minimize when, when somebody says, well, they've been inconvenient. So somebody who lives in, uh, in say, uh, Minneapolis says, in the middle of the winter at, at holidays, we're going to go down and we're going to take a cruise out of Florida. So they book an airline ticket with plenty of time to get there in time for the cruise, and the airline flight shows up two days late. Not because of weather, but because of the airline's computers. Do you know what happens when you show up two days late for, a, for an ocean cruise? <laughs> I don't think you get to go on the cruise. You, you, can't, you can't swim that fast. And so, no. and so you know, and, and, and if it's I, I, I'm flying somewhere for business or I'm flying somewhere to see family, family expects to see me, uh, and you show up a day and a half after Christmas dinner or a day and a half after New Year's, um, it doesn't quite work out, does it? No, no. No, and all the airline says is, well, we owe you a flight from point A to point B whenever we choose to get you there. If they, if they, if they renege on that arrangement, if, if it's all just on their dime, you know, then that's, that's fine. Uh, that, then, then people can choose to say, I'm not going to do business with that airline anymore. And I'm willing to bet there are plenty of people who, when they find out that Southwest was the biggest part of the problem, they're going to say, I'm never going to fly there. There are certain airlines I don't fly anymore. I like Alaska. I've got no more other arrangement other than I've, I've bought tickets on Alaska. But if, uh, if, if a, an airline disappoints me severely, I may say, then I'm going to choose to spend my money elsewhere. George, thanks for the call from Tacoma. And thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. Happy New Year, and uh, thanks for supporting the Radio Northwest Network. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges, but how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you.
You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.